Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line and talk to the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, costumers, production designers, uh, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, and of course, the actors. Um... And we do this every single week, every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And if you're sitting at home and you're near your computer and you're bored and you want something to look at, you can always go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can watch our live stream. It's nothing spectacular. It's just me sitting in the studio. But you do get a chance to see my lovely tablescapes each week and been rotating out every week um, beautiful, beautiful packaging of these wonderful screeners of uh, awards for awards consideration. So you can take a look and see what kind of films. And based on the films that I put out on the tablescape, you kind of get a taste of some of my favorites this awards season. Hint, hint. Um, and of course, if you miss us live, after the show, you can always find every show t- becomes a podcast afterwards Get and is out on all the podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, others. I can't even think of all of them, as well as being on BehindTheLensOnline.net, where you can find full interviews, reviews, trailers, and bunches of other stuff. Uh, and, of course, some really fabulous Red carpet interviews from TCM, LA Film Festival, Spirit Awards, um, up through last year before we went on lockdown and red carpets ended. Uh, hopefully they will come back by the end of this year. Uh, but big show today. I'm very excited. I'm not excited with the microphone today. It's like moving around. Pam's looking at me funny. Um, wonderful guest today coming up momentarily and they're already on hold they were so excited to be on behind the lens today directors Deanne Foley and Latonya Hartery are with us to talk about the charming a charming narrative feature film anthology called Hopeless Romantic and it is set within the confines of a wedding and there are six different women who are telling different romance stories um, bemoaning. There's ugly crying. There's happy tears. There's lots of alcohol. It's a fun film. Uh, and as I posted on social media earlier today, um, by the time you get to the end of the film, I think it should be called Hopeful Romantic and not Hopeless Romantic. And at the midpoint of the show, very excited to have this this incredible a gentleman joining us, uh, Stephen Janis, uh, award-winning investigative journalist, uh, author. He now brings us um, a documentary, The Friendliest Town, uh, which is a really interesting, interesting story about a police chief. Um, police chief, uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, Kevin Sewell, who was the first African-American police chief 
in this small eastern seaboard town in Maryland, less than 4,000 people. And everybody loved him, and then he was unceremoniously dismissed, terminated by city council, by an all-white city council. Old man, old white city council. Um, And it's very interesting to see how this came, uh, turned from Stephen, along with his... uh, co-producer and co-director of this documentary, uh, Taya Graham, how they went from celebrating um, police chief Sewell's hiring and what he was doing, turning crime around in the community, to digging deep as investigative reporters to find out what was behind his firing. And this journey started in 2011, And uh, the documentary is now here. There is still an appeal going, uh, but we're going to get into all of that with Stephen. But he is a wonderful investigative journalist. Uh, He's also a book author. He's got two novels out. He's got multiple nonfiction books out on uh, policing. So he'll be joining us at the midpoint of the show. Quickly, before Deanne, before I bring Deanne and Latonia on live, I've got two films I've got to mention to you that are both available and out now, streaming everywhere. Uh, one is on VOD as well. First one, Me, You, Madness. I am, I am just over the moon. I am so excited by this film. It is irreverent, politically incorrect, breaks a fourth wall. It's high octane. It's glamorous. It is rapier Whitfield, darkly comedic action movie and love story. It is written and directed by Louise uh, Louise Linson, who also happens to be married to former Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin. Um, she is an actor, but this is her first directorial and scripting, and she knocks it out of the park. She co-stars, she stars in it as well with Ed Westwick, and it is a hoot and a holler. Uh, she plays this uber-rich hedge fund manager, and uh, Ed Westwick plays a guy looking to rent a room in this palatial Malibu estate, and uh, hijinks occur and things are not what they appear to be and there's theft and there's murder and there's dead bodies and trunks which 10 years ago my youngest nephew would have been very excited about since that's always been his criteria on the quality of cars how many dead bodies can you fit in a trunk Um, were he still five I think he'd be very excited by this film Uh, but me you madness it is great great fun another film that's out there right now paradise cove Written by Sherry Klein, directed by Martin Guigi, uh, Martin Guigi. Martin is a wonderful director. He's also a composer. He's a Grammy-nominated uh, music producer. Uh, he wrote and directed a film uh, several years ago, 9-11, starring Charlie Sheen, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Gina Gershon. Wonderful film. He now steps in directing this script by Klein. The film stars Todd Grinnell. Kristen Bauer, Von Stratton, and Mina uh, Suvari. The script on its own is really a, it's a lifetime movie. Let's call it like it is. It is a lifetime movie. 
But where the film gets elevated is in Martine's direction and the production values, which are extremely high. Um, the scoring, Jeff Cardoni does the scoring. It'd be lie, it, this would not be the kind of score you would find in a Lifetime TV movie, which elevates it into theatrical. Eric Potter's editing is sharp. It's crisp. Uh, he really makes the most of Kristen Bauer von Stratton's performance uh, as a slightly nutso former Malibu homeowner whose house has been essentially taken away from her because of unpaid property taxes. Uh, and this is something that does happen, and this is allegedly based on a true story uh, that Klein wrote this about. Uh, cinematography, Massimo Zeri, keeps it light, keeps it bright, really makes the most of the Malibu Coast and Paradise Cove itself. One of the great things of this film that I'm particularly fond of is the sound design and the sound mix. Absolutely impeccable blending surf and the sound of the surf, daytime surf, nighttime surf, scoring, dialogue, and shower scenes are very important here. Um, not as important as in a Hitchcock film, but very important. The production values are impeccable here. Uh, the performances are, are wonderful. It's a great psychological thriller. But as I said, the script is really a lifetime TV movie, but it is Martine's direction that elevates this and makes it theatrically worthy. Uh, it is out now. Check it out. Check out Me, You Madness. And another one that uh, I think I'm going to talk about next week after I speak with the director is Willie's Wonderland starring Nick Cage. It is over the top insanity and he doesn't say a word in the whole film. So get ready because I think next week you're going to hear my interview with the director of Willie's Wonderland. But right now, okay, Pam, now Pam's got to connect the phone lines for me. All right. We're going to bring them live here. We've got Deanne Foley and Latonia Hardery talking about Hopeless Romantic. Hello, ladies. Welcome. Hi. All right. Who do Thank I have? Thank you so much. Who do I have? Deanne? I'm Deanne, yep. Latonia? Yes. Okay. Latonia's here. They're here. They're here. This is such a charming film. Absolutely. Oh my God. I didn't know what to expect. Whenever you hear anthology, sometimes there's not a connective tissue between the individual parts of the film. Um, sometimes there is and it doesn't connect. Here, it's all about romance, it's all about love, the good, the bad, and the ugly cry. Um, and you tie it all together along with your other directorial partners and this is one of the things that's so great is you've got six women directing we're talking we've got six different love stories quote unquote that we're focusing on and it all comes under the umbrella of everybody's at a wedding and right there that's all anybody really needs to know is you're at a wedding and anything <laughs> that can go wrong does go wrong anything that open mouth insert foot um yeah. And you cover it all here. But at the end of the day, the charm is just, it makes you hopeful. You are not a hopeless yeah. romantic. You are a hopeful romantic by the end of this film. 
and these women in their various states of inebriation sharing their love stories with each other. Uh, where? Where did the idea for this film arise? Well, um, this feature, this is Latonia speaking, this, this feature was my first uh, feature in terms of producing it and, and co-directing it. And I knew that when I was creating it, I was looking for a way to, to have an opportunity that would benefit more than just me, like a rising tide floats all boat type thing. And that's when I thought about um, an anthology uh, concept with my other co-producers. And um, we just put it out there that we would do a hopeless uh, a kind of like a romantic comedy. And then the more voices involved, the... Um, the better, because it would it would just create more opportunities for women in terms of writing and directing. And um, so we landed on the anthology style, and for the exact purpose that you're saying, we knew that if we were going to do an anthology, it would be good to not have it feel so disconnected, but right. have this connective tissue. And that's where the spine came in, and the spine, the story of Anna, our main character, was actually directed by Deanne. Oh, and I have to say, Deanne, I love Anna's story. She is not only the through line, but she has her own story. And Linda Boyd is fabulous in this role. Absolutely Yeah, I mean, uh, we were just so lucky to have Linda on board to play the lead role of Anna. I think she carries the filming. I worked with uh, Linda on a television series that was filmed here in Newfoundland called The Republic of Doyle. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so when we brought Linda, you know, as soon as we, you know, the role of, um, sorry, I'm just getting a bit of feedback on my phone. Um, the character of, of Anna was created. I mean, we, for me, it was, I, I immediately thought of Linda. And um, so I, I directed all the scenes of, of Anna mostly at the wedding, but her backstory was actually directed by um, Megan Wimberg. So it was kind of interesting how uh, we had two directors trying to, you know, tell her story. Well, and what I love is everything is so cohesive. There is mm-hmm. there is one voice that comes through in this film. There is nothing disjointed. As I'm sure you both know, so often when you have multiple directors, especially in something like an anthology, you've got so many different voices that it stands out and they're fighting against each other. And yeah. we don't have that here. This is so seamless, so cohesive, that it is a joy to watch. And you don't realize it's an anthology. Well, yeah. I'm glad and it works for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, like, a lot of it comes with our prep, too, because we were, you know, it, it certainly took a while for, to do all the writing, and we you know, tried to have as much communication as possible. And similarly, when the film was shot in Nova Scotia, um, you know, there was a number of talks beforehand, and we had meetings with all the central characters, not only people in the spine, but the lead actors in the flashback as well. We all got into one room. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it it worked out in the end because we're calling it an anthology, but essentially... As Linda Boyd, through her character Anna, experiences her, her story and the things that happen to her, these um, segmented stories are more like flashbacks, I mm-hmm. suppose, that kind of inform eventually the choices she's going to make with her love interest, Eric. 
And, of course, what she's going to say in her wedding speech. Um, yeah. Which anybody that's, <laughs> that's ever given one of those. I gave one at one of my brother's weddings. And, boy, you got to put so much thought in it. And you start thinking, who am I going to? I don't want to offend. I don't want to do this. Uh, for me, I just said, oh, the heck with it. And I offended everybody. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, what Anna says ultimately is predicated upon what she has heard from all of these women. And mm-hmm. this is where all of you excel. Um, all of the writers, Thank the you. directors, the actors, is the diversity. You've got every age group in here. You have the women being professionals. You've got a cardiologist. You have another doctor. You've got somebody who just has gotten her Ph.D. Um, Women are they are accomplished. They are not, you know, just no-nonsense bubbleheads. Yeah, I think that was really important to uh, Latonia and myself, and I think every female that was on the team is to, uh, you know, create, um, you know, well-rounded, strong female characters, but also, um, you know, have a make sure that the diversity was was a big component of the storytelling and, and, you know, make sure that, you know, all ages were represented. I think at one we had an, an idea earlier on that maybe all the flashbacks could be Anna. You know, we could get to know Anna through the various stages of her life. Um, and then we realized that was sort of like a little bit more difficult and challenging to pull off, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. on a, our budget. And so uh, I think what we landed on was uh, something fairly, you know, it's fairly uh, interesting. It really is, and the fact that you even you even have you know the older woman with the younger man, and you throw in a little wrinkle where not only is she an older woman with the younger guy, but she went to school with the guy's mother, and who doesn't want to admit her age, and then the one is dressing like she's nineteen years old as opposed to what her age really is. The contrast that you set up. This you could pick this out of any bar, any restaurant, any dating mm-hmm. service. I think um, this is so authentic in what all of you have brought to the screen. Uh, we see these relationships and these situations unfold every single day. Well, at least when we were all out and about, not locked in our houses, but mm-hmm. just. The authenticity and the believability. There is something here that will resonate with everyone. There's something for everyone here. Yeah. And I I mean, I I think to not any one of these stories is necessarily based on a true story. But I mean, I think collectively, Megan, Ruth, Martine, uh, Stephanie, Deanne and I, would have, you know, thought about our own life experiences in general and the experiences of our friends. So I think that that speaks to the authenticity of, of the film. And, you know, in terms of doing a romantic comedy, and like ours has a little bit of a darker edge too, mm-hmm. just looking at that conventional and traditional structure of a romantic comedy, you know, and it's like how do we bring it to another territory and, and put our own spin on that. 
and and you really succeed with that because we've seen rom-coms with weddings we've seen them where we've got the really ugly ugly cry and mascara streaming down faces onto clothes um (laughs) you don't go quite that far because you've got a support system that comes into play with just another woman in the bathroom (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah and it just it's effortless how difficult was casting this? Because while it is so diverse, there, everybody gets a, gets along. You don't have um, clash and conflict or any cat fights happening. So how how challenging was casting this? That's a good um, one well, for you, um, Deanne, I think. You know, we had over 50 actors from... Nova Scotia in the film. So it was very challenging uh, in terms of um, having such a wide net um, <laughs> in, in one particular uh, place. Um, Nova Scotia has, has amazing actors, but mm-hmm. it was just, it was challenging because half the directors were living in another province. And so a lot of the auditions were actually self-tapes, not being, being able to be in the room with them. Um, but, you know, we were very fortunate, I think, that the, with the cast that we landed on. And uh, other than Linda, who uh, we brought in from Vancouver, um, it was all local actors. Wow. No wonder everybody wants to go film there. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The talent pool yeah. is just amazing. Amazing. You know, and, and, and this, with so many moving parts here, with so many different directors, so many different actors, how challenging did the editing become for this film? And how involved were each of you and your fellow directors in the editing process? Yeah, well, everyone definitely, whatever portion of the movie uh, a person directed, and they, of course, had a say and um, and work with the editor to compose their own segments. And because a lot of the shorter flashback sequences were in a way flashbacks and different from um, the spine or, or Anna's arc or journey, then that worked out, you know, quite nice. And we did want them to be a little bit um, different because every person had a different experience in a relationship. So it was a fine balance between making sure every segment or flashback was different, but yet the film felt cohesive. And I think part of the cohesion definitely comes from the fact that, um, as I mentioned before, Deanne did the, the story arc of Anna and the spine with Megan doing mm-hmm. um, a part of that work as well. But then Deanne also did two of the, the flashbacks, the, the child story and the pool story. So I think that also... Um, contributed to that feeling of, of togetherness. Um, but yeah, in the editing phase, everybody had certainly had, um, you know, a hand in making sure their stories turned out like they wanted them to turn out. Um, and we had one editor though. So there was just one editor who did the whole thing. And I think that helped as well. Well, yeah, something that I, that I really appreciate here is also the cinematography. Uh, mm-hmm. Each one of the segments has its own look for that character, for their life. And we really see that with our PhD party segment, um, where things get darker in tone, beautifully lit, and but darker, visually darker, tonally darker, 
um, versus the beauty of the pool sequence. That pool sequence is great. Plus, it's hilarious. <laughs> and I have to say, I sat there and I'm going, she's doing what? She's saving her ex-husband? She's crazy. <laughs> um, but, you know, to each his own. Uh, but the the cinematography throughout, and you keep the wedding itself very light and bright, and you've got all those beautiful windows in that location where so much is happening in the hall, and the bathroom's very nice, too. Uh, so I'm curious about the cinematography um, for this, because every piece is beautiful, but I love the tonal differences that come into play with the segments. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jeff Wheaton was our cinematographer, so I think it was really important that, you know, we had one uh, crew for the entire film, and, you know, Jeff did the cinematography. And then I think what you're feeling, the different tones are the the different voices of the directors, right? So Mm -hmm. each director had their own vision for their own flashback, and, you know, each director chose, chose all the, lo- you know, did final, uh, you know, say on, on location and costume and production design. So, you know, I, mean, I think that's what you're feeling is, you know, each director having their own, um, their own vision for each of these segments. Whereas, but, you know, all, the, I mean, yes, absolutely. Hats off to Jeff mm-hmm. um, Wheaton, our cinematographer, who was able to kind of, uh, you know, realize each director's vision. Yeah, I mean, the visual tone, the overall visual tonal bandwidth is, here again, it's cohesive, but the individual segments, each is very defining for that particular woman. And as you said, it could be each director with their voice or the voice of that character, but it works so well, and we see the different kind of lives that these people have, and so much is defined by the cinematography for each segment, and it just works so well. You know, that's the one thing I really loved about the film is, like, you know, a wedding is a perfect place for all these women to come together, you know, that, like, you end up having those small talks, or, you know, I think that the way that women support each other, even when sometimes they're strangers, Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love I loved the, to me, that's why I loved about the film is having, first of all, seen so many um, uh, female characters on the screen and like having to direct seven female <laughs> actors uh, at the same time was kind of like a dream for me. Um, but yeah, I think that's sort of what kind of really shines in the film. Now, there's also, how did you go about uh, with scoring for this film? With seven different directors, um, and all the different segments, what came down, who came down to determining scoring? Well, we worked with Dwayne Andrews. He's a musician here in St. John's, Newfoundland, and uh, he's very experienced. I think he's probably scored 30 films now. So the question then for him is um, that we had was how to, again, similar to what Deanne just pointed out, make sure every single flashback sequence kind of has its own feeling, but that there's um, an overarching theme, too, in the the music that ties everything together. So he did the overall sort of, like, pass for the music, and then everybody got to, again, hear 
what um, you know was related to their own film and had the input. So so basically, the music worked almost the exact same way as the the editing did as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean everything. As I said at the top, everything is so cohesive here. Um, nothing is disjointed. Everything is connected, and it's done seamlessly and thoughtfully. Um, I am beyond, beyond impressed with what <laughs> all the women did on this. Um, Thank you. Because I've seen some anthologies that are just, we won't even go there. We won't even go there. It, well, you know, it's, it's really, you know, hats off to a lot of the directors. I mean, most of those flashback stories, people, you know, the director only had two days to film each of those flashback stories. So, you know, it was a very... Um, uh, tight schedule for everyone involved. So um, a lot of moving parts and, you know, just a big cast and and having to pass the baton to each director and mm-hmm. the crew having to kind of, um, you know, again, you know, having to deal with a new director and a new way of kind of working. And so, you know, I think everyone really kind of, you know, brought their A game at the end of the day. You know, I'm, I'm curious, did you get any real rehearsal or pre-production time for this? And if there was pre-production time, did all of, of the directors come together? Um, or did everybody do their own thing? You want to take that, Latonya? Yeah, yeah. It was a little, it was a, <laughs> sorry. It was a little bit of both, actually. Uh, we did have pre-production time, but the directors, um, every director got pre-production time Mm -hmm. but the six women directors were never in on set at the same time except for me as a producer uh, one of the co-producers I was on set all the time and got to work with all of the directors directly and I think Deanne you and Megan overlap sometimes because you were working on um Anna's Anna's story story. so essentially Mm -hmm. if they were out of province you know they would come to Halifax from Newfoundland, if they were uh, a Newfoundland-based director, probably a week ahead of time. And then that way they could put the finishing touches on their, you know, set deck and have meetings with their actors and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's kind of how we had to do it to keep to keep things running. And you could kind of feel the, the energy as well from that. Like I, when I reflect back on this movie, the excitement of it and the energy of it really was part of the the feeling of creating something special and that really helps sort of move things forward. Mm -hmm. I'm curious for each of you, because of this particular style of the anthology, uh, the way it's broken out and Deanne for you doing the connective tissue through line of Anna plus Anna's individual story, you know, what did each of you learn about yourself as a filmmaker directing in this type of, project under this umbrella that's a good question (laughs) um long pause um I, i guess you know honestly it's it is very challenging to tell a story with so many voices and i think it was very challenging um I think during the script writing phase, just the fact that the, we were all spread out between two provinces and, you know, um, not having a lot of resources to bring us together, um, 
very often. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me it was just recognizing um, how the, it's just an enormous amount of work to, you know, pull off a film and when you have this many voices. And so, you know, while I think thanks to Latonia and, you know, the other two producers that we were, you know, hugely supportive in, in trying to, you know, push us all and make the best film possible, um, you know, I think I think it's it's definitely a challenge. I mean, on paper, this really shouldn't work. <laughs> but you know, I, I I guess what I really got of it was how much I loved working with the um, with the uh, with uh, just, uh, just a cast of uh, of uh, of women. Mm-hmm. And now from the other one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think for me personally, I probably learned more. Not that I didn't learn something from being, a, uh, you know, additional things about being a director on, on this film, but from a producing perspective, I think, is where I, I learned a lot. Because essentially, I was, even though it was one movie, I still was working with, you know, five other directors, and then everybody has different needs, and you have to be quite flexible and adapt to uh, all the different processes, because people don't work the same way. And, you know, a lot of producing is not necessarily dollars and cents, right? It's about supporting the creatives that you're working with and what is it that they need to be their best selves and tell their best stories. And that's the kind of person I wanted to be. I always wanted to to be there to support them. And in a way, it's kind of like I had to, you know, uh, tap into different parts of my skill set all the time because people had different ways of working. Mm -hmm. Well, whatever you tapped into... It sure works well, because the proof mm-hmm. is the proof is in the pudding, ladies. Um, this truly is. It is a gem. This is one of those glistening little gems in the indie film world that everybody should see, just because it's so well done, and it's sweet, it's charming, and we need more of that on screen. Ah. Uh. Thank you so much. Oh, my God. Unfortunately, I have to let the two of you go for our next guest. I hope the both of you will come back on the show again with future projects, of which I'm sure there will be many. Um, Oh, absolutely. This has just been been a joy. And everybody can find Hopeless Romantic. It's streaming everywhere on all the platforms right now. So everybody can find it. Everybody can see it. And everybody can get hopeful about romance and love. Oh. <laughs> Deanne, Latonia, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank oh, our pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, bye. Bye. And that's it. Hopeless Romantic. Deanne Foley, Latonia Hartery. You can find it everywhere. Now, we're really switching gears. We're going from rom-com romance to... Hardcore investigative reporting documentary. Welcome, Steve and Janice. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I am thrilled to have you. What a documentary! Uh, <laughs> obviously, when you when you first started started out to cover the story about Kelvin Sewell, you had no idea it was going to turn into this. No, no. I, I honestly thought, you know, it was just going to be sort of covering the fallout from his firing. I didn't ever really anticipate that suddenly it would turn into 
this prolonged prosecution and and sort of continuing cycle of uh, retaliation. So no, I had I had no if I had known I don't know if I would have done it. <laughs> If I had any idea it was going to be this long. Because, I mean, here you are, you're covering the story of this of a police chief, the first African-American police, police chief in Pocomoke. Um, everybody loved him. He loved everybody. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, go ahead, sorry. Oh No, I was just going to say, that right there, as I'm watching the doc, I'm like, what the heck? Um, yeah. Right. And, well, you know, I mean, I think that was, and, and that was sort of a starting point for a lot of stuff. Um, but, you know, as we got delved into the story, we realized that it had been brewing for a long time that, you know, he, 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 there had been tensions because he had sort of, just so people know, he implemented a very intense community style of policing and, um, that, that there was a great pushback against that because there was a drug task force that was used to doing kind of drug work kind of stuff. So this had been brewing for a long time, and that that firing was just the beginning point of really revealing all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you had a relationship with Kelvin before everything went to hell in a handbasket. Um, you yeah. Because you guys wrote a book together, Why Do We Kill the Pathology of Murder in Baltimore? Um you are known for hard-hitting stuff. You, you know, you embrace the idea of an investigative reporter. You're not doing fluff. Um, no. So. No. I mean, you got to consider that in Baltimore City, we have one of the most, I think, arguably corrupt police departments in the country. But, of course, it's much more complex than, than just saying a, a department is complex because it's really it, sort of ingrained in the fabric of a city that makes huge policy decisions about emphasizing policing over other types of programs. And of course, in Pocomoke, you know, Kelvin kind of tried to reverse that. So it was already kind of a fascinating story in that he had moved to a smaller town and really tried to change policing, getting officers to get out of their cars and walk and connect and be more humane. And it actually succeeded. So it was sort of contrary to all the philosophy of American policing over the past two decades. It has to be more violent, more aggressive, you know, um, more militarized and and it works so you already had that going on that dynamic and the fact that the you know the power structure in that town pushed back against him so hard that after he was fired they actually prosecuted him was just to me exemplar of what's wrong with american policing so it was one of those writ large investigations where it's not just about one corrupt cop or something but how the system itself sort of perpetuates bad policing you know and what i find so striking is Uh, this whole idea of community policing and you get out and you meet the people and you walk around growing up that's in the 1960s that's what police did i grew up in suburban Mm -hmm. philly Mm -hmm. and yeah you knew everybody all the township police you knew them they knew you Mm -hmm. they they knew who the troublemakers were they knew where to show up and where and where not to do but then and to see it go and to be in suburban philly and to see what was happening with the Philadelphia police and under Rizzo's domain right. as chief of police, and then when he became mayor, um, that in and of itself was very striking for me growing up. So I saw the best and the worst. Uh, so yeah. na- and now to see people like Kelvin Sewell take things back, and this whole cry for community policing again, it's like. Yeah, guys, it worked 40 years ago, 50 years ago. You know, try it again. Yeah. 
you know, why? <laughs> That's really, it's really interesting you say that because um, I think one of the things that changed policing, well, there are two things. One of them was the war on drugs, mm-hmm. which sort of changed the way policing was done pretty much completely, you know, because it yeah. became sort of a, a business of, you know, cycling people into a system that didn't belong there. And then, of course, you had 9-11 where they really uh, ramped up the militarization of policing. So, yeah, I mean, really what he was doing was nothing more than restoring what policing had done 40 or 50 years ago when it wasn't supposed to be this manufacturer of arrests and prosecutor of a war on drugs, which, of course, is a war against addiction, really, when you think about it in Mm -hmm. so many ways. And, yeah, they were just really, he was really just going back to the roots of policing, in some sense, the best roots of policing. And that it became so controversial is, is really kind of stunning. Yeah, that's, as I'm watching the documentary, all these things that you're bringing to light um, were just astounding to me, that how people could not want this. And then to get rid of a man who incorporates something and the people love seeing him and getting to know him and what he's doing. Um, but I can also see where the conflict would be with you know, DEA and Drug Enforcement Task Forces, because um, mm-hmm. everybody wants their own domain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the people, the, the, you know, Drug Task Force are very, uh, I guess the word would be lucrative for the people who are involved in them, and, you know, you get a lot of leeway, and you can run around and sort of run into any town or city you want and arrest people who are addicted um, and, and, you know, and people who deal drugs too, but it's, a, you know, the people, for example, in the Worcester County Drug Task Force, where a lot of this conflict started, were the highest paid officers in the entire county. Wow. So it's very lucrative, very attractive for police to get involved in stuff like that. And it's probably in some sense, they wouldn't, they would probably contradict me, but very much easier than having to like, you know, really go out and walk in the community and try to solve complex problems. Mm. You know, when did you realize and decide, okay, this needs to be a documentary? Um, well, I think, you know, I think the first thing was obviously the community had embraced him, and so that was very different. But then when I interviewed a woman uh, named Jerry Fitch, who was a person who had been caught up in some drug raids, and when she told me, number one, that, you know, they had been trying to get him on something for many, several years before he was fired, and then number two, that the state prosecutor's office was combing through his career, uh, you know, and trying to find a way to charge him, uh, you know, with something, that I became sort of sure that this whole story had to be told, because my fear was that if they indicted him and convicted him, that really no one would, everyone would think he was just another cop, which I, I don't believe is the case. And therefore, you know, the whole story had to be told so that people could see how the criminal justice system is often, for people like me who who see it up close, it's often a tool for, you know, retaliation and Mm -hmm. to a certain degree, especially in cities like Baltimore, repression, oppression. And um, I felt like you had to see the whole story so that you wouldn't just think, well, he he wasn't that good a cop. He got got convicted and indicted. So that, to me, was like the whole story has to be told. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, watching you, and of course, part of the fun in watching this documentary is your partner in crime, Taya Graham. Watching mm-hmm. Taya grow as a reporter and a segment producer out there filming, 
is great. Mm-hmm. We see growth in her as a journalist, as an investigative reporter. Yeah, I mean, this was her first real story, you know, where real in-depth story. She had just started working in video journalism, and so t- it's, it's totally true. You actually see her progressive years, and it documents that that's kind of a sub-story of the whole thing is Taya's development and growth, which is uh, which was amazing, and also, you know, just for me to see it, to witness someone, you know, start out, really, that was one of her first stand-ups she does in 2015, and by the wow. end, you know, she's really practiced and professional, and, she, and she's extremely talented throughout, so it's not like she couldn't do it. But yeah, she really uh, develops and, and becomes a full-fledged investigative reporter right as the documentary unfolds, so it is, it is kind of a testament to her ability, her skills, and her development as a journalist. Uh, aside from just Kelvin's story, you're right, and it was quite something to watch. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching her growth uh, as an investigative yeah. reporter, as a journalist, uh, because she's yeah. not she's not there just to be a pretty face. She's not no. she's not there no. for the old for the old fashioned quote unquote Q factor. Um, she <laughs> truly she is there to be a, a true reporter. And some, yeah, I mean, some of the things that she, questions that she posits and comes up with, yeah, her mind is thinking, she's working, and you see this. And I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, you know, she she has, uh, you know, experienced racism in her personal life, and then, you know, she's reported on it, and I think she had a, a unique perspective in that mm-hmm. fact. And, and the fact that she was willing to drive down to Pocomo 35, 40 times, which is a seven-hour round trip, means that she was just as dedicated as I was to telling the story. And it's a testament to her commitment as a journalism journalist and also the fact that she was working through things that she had experienced in her own life and seen, you know, just from a personal subjective perspective. So I think she brought both of those things to the, to the table, and I think they worked quite well. Now, once you decided, okay, we're going to turn this into a documentary, what was your editing process like? Did you wait until you had assimilated, you know, until, you know, we're up to what, the second appeal now that uh, mm-hmm. that Sewell's got? Yes. So at what point did you say, okay, we're going to start editing this and then develop your through line? Because you have a lot of interviews from community people um, mm-hmm. and dependent on your timeline is dependent on where you're going to put part of a lot of what they have to say so i'm curious about that process for you well i think around 2019 you know we we had kept we knew the story was going to keep going but we had to (laughs) pick a point where we stopped and you know there were there were several as you point through lines one was the firing of kelvin the prosecution but then there was also the raising of the town's consciousness Mm -hmm. so um you know, I, I just decided the most important thing was to start out with the story, with the people from the town talking about their town, because that was kind of the nexus for everything that happens from it. So I had interviewed everyone, really, after his first prosecution in 2018, not knowing that the case would be overturned. And But I think their sense of, of, of how their community grew, how they started this citizens group called the Citizens for a Better Pokemon, that became very politically active. Uh, that sort of became like the train, as we call it, in documentary filmmaking, where I thought, okay, I can build off this. And as, as you know better than anybody, 
Uh, film operates best in a sim. It, it takes very simple things and becomes complex when it's simplified, mm-hmm. not the other way around. And so I just felt like starting with them gave me something to build off of, just their appreciation of the town, their appreciation of Kelvin, and, you know, their, the raising of their political consciousness. Everything could flow from there. But I felt like I could tell that story, and even if I hadn't gone through the second appeal, it was still worth telling that story. So that's that's when I said, hey, I've got to start putting this together. <laughs> How many hours of footage did you have to put together, Stephen? Oh. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, we, as reporters at The Real News, we did 35 some, some odd stories on Pokemon. We, there is so much stuff that we shot that we didn't use. I mean, you know, 35 to 40 trips, you accumulate multiple drives. And, and that's a, you know, a big process is deciding, mm-hmm. as you well know, uh, cutting is almost as important as what you're adding. And there was a tremendous amount of subplots that we had to cut and just things that we couldn't use. And I mean, I have drives and drives full of stuff. And um, But, you know, you have to get out of the way of it, right? Because you, mm-hmm. if you bog down the storyline, it just uh, it, it becomes a film just doesn't work. So I feel like uh, I'd probably have like enough to do a whole nother one. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I would imagine. Like what you didn't see? Mm-hmm. You know, how did you decide who you were going to interview? Because uh, you have a great variety of people from the town, but I, the documentary, you focus on, I'd say, probably seven, six or seven of them uh, mm-hmm. with interviews. But I'm curious how you decided who to speak well, with initially and then who to include. Well, yeah, that's interesting because... You know, one thing we covered, and, and it's this is part of going down to Pokemon a lot, we covered this Citizens Were Better Pokemon group, which was formed to sort of fight for Chief Kelvin Sewell's um, reinstatement. And over that time, we built relationships with the people who were the most active in that group. And so us represented, you know, the, 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 the widest possible sort of spectrum of the town's opinion and people you know, people who were fighting for Sewell's, um, you know, reinstatement. So as over time, as we got to know them and we built relationships and they trusted us, that was basically, you know, as you know, as a journalist, access has a lot to do with it, mm-hmm. building trust with people and, and getting them to be willing. And so over time, it just kind of weeded itself out. And there were just a certain core group of people that we knew we had to ask to tell the story. And so that's how we settled on them. I mean, obviously, Kay and I take a big role in the storytelling, but that's from a different perspective. The people from Citizens for Better Pokemon were just basically people that we had covered so extensively, felt like we were kind of related to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the diversity of them is, I find, just so striking. Um, because mm-hmm. one would think yeah. there are many di- filmmakers that they would only talk to African-American supporters in a situation like this. Right. And really force a visual race, racial divide. You don't do that here. And I, I think that speaks volumes to you as a reporter, as a journalist, uh, and Taya, but also as to the community, showing you know, the admiration and respect that everyone had for this man. Well, the interesting thing about that, and I think, and I know what you're saying about some documentaries that tend to take very strong perspectives mm-hmm. because we're journalists you know we want to talk to everyone yeah and 
you know, we want everyone's perspective. It's just part of something that's ingrained in you. You know, you talk to the people that, you know, you that might disagree with each other or whatever. And so, uh, you know, we, we wanted to make it as wholesome as possible. But also, you know, the thing that was interesting is there were just as many, he had just as many supporters in the white community. When, you know, when it became clear that racism was part of why he got fired, uh, then, you know, the sort of two communities went to either side. But there were still white people who still supported him willing to speak out. And I, I thought it was important for people to know that that he related to both, you know, pop parts of the town. There was white part of town, African-American part, and he, he was able to cross that divide. And I really wanted that to be in the film because I didn't want people to think that, that he was, you know, limited in some form by that. He was actually universally liked and was able to cross those boundaries in the town that had been defined by race. And, you know, people who don't know Maryland, but the eastern, lower eastern shore was had slavery and as, is in some ways extremely locked in the past. So mm-hmm. I really wanted people to see that. Yeah, a lot of people seem to forget that a good part of Maryland is below the Mason-Dixon line. Um, exactly. I, mean, I lived in Frederick for a while. And oh, wow. Very, very, very prevalent mm-hmm. everywhere you look. Yep. Um, yep. So, and that was, I was in Frederick back in the days when, you know, the block in Baltimore, you did not go near the block in Baltimore. Uh, This is in (laughs) in the late 70s. Um, And I was like, why? Why don't you go there? Uh, And and people said, no, no. I said, no, I want to see it. I want to see it. Uh, No, these are the things you don't go to. You do not go see these things. Um, But, no, this is... Is there anything that you wish you had been able to include in this documentary, such as more from the city council, um, which it looks like at every turn they were being so obstreperous and just throwing, you know, hurdles and blocks in your way, you know, ignoring the fact that you're a journalist there to cover the city council meetings. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I'd been inside that first city council meeting, which, you know, I heard was quite crazy. So, I mean, you know, not to be um, a journalist, but I would have liked to have witnessed the spectacle and have included that. And also, I think it would have been nice to have a little bit more. I mean, I could I could sometimes get the council people who, you know, who, who voted to fire school, but they were not very candid. And I wish perhaps that I had been able to get more out of them to use. But it was also a complicated story to tell. You know, if I went delved into them as well, if I had more time and more money, I might have been able to do that. But um, I think I think also, you know, I wish we we had some residents who had witnessed the history of racism in the town. It would have been nice to be able to delve a little bit more into that and get more people. But people just were dying off, and and you know, the, unfortunately, the gentleman we have in there who told the story about having to go into the back of stores and being chased off of Main Street, he passed away mm. since we interviewed him. So I, I wish we could have gotten a little more of that history because that's, that's really important to understand because it sort of informs the present. Mm. And I think that's so true a lot with a lot of these rural communities on the east and, they're in, and that are below the Mason-Dixon line. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. in... in I still remember visiting my grandmother in Columbus, Georgia in the 70s. Mm. And wow. still, 
you know, the African-Americans, they'd go to the other side of the street when a white person was walking down the street. And I just did not coming, you know, from the north going down. I did not understand that. And she goes, no, that's the way it is. And you're talking 1978. So, no, go ahead. Go ahead. One thing I I would say, no, and what's important, what you you say is absolutely correct and extremely important for people to recognize who have an experience with. And at the center of that, as I say in the documentary, I think it's important to realize policing played a big role in enforcing those boundaries. Like in Pocomoke, police would chase all the African-American residents off of Main Street. That was their job, and their job was to enforce um, the segregation and all the laws. So policing, that's why policing was so pivotal in perhaps changing the town a little bit when Kelvin came in, because it had played that role before. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious, what was, because you are, you're an acclaimed author, you're an award-winning journalist. What was the, lear- and you do video journalism what was the learning curve like for you putting together an entire documentary oh man (laughs) that was it was it's like you you have to learn a whole new medium but like like i said before film is so different than writing i mean i know that sounds sillyly simple but it's just profoundly different and you know you have to think visually and, and you have to like learn how to construct a story Without And the major thing I think you have to learn to make the transition is not to get in the way of the story, as I'm sure you understand, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times the biggest mistake you make as a filmmaker is just to get get in the way of your own storytelling. And, I mean, it was like I started after I was at a newspaper. Uh, it went out of business. I got a job at a television station. So I had a couple years in, in video, and it was like so different. I was doing journalism, but it was like going into a whole different I was like a theater major or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so transformative. So it was like a seven or eight year learning process to even figure this out because I'd been such a print person mm-hmm. and to figure out film and, and to understand it and to like, you know, because, you know, we did this mostly ourselves. We didn't have like editors or photos. We, we shot everything. We edited it. I even had to do the score, right? Yes, I was so, going to say <laughs> you did that too. I know I had to. It's too expensive. The, the two songs we put in the film cost like six thousand dollars. So <laughs> I was, I, I was utterly shocked that you actually had some needle drops in there. I'm thinking, oh my god, how much did this cost him? Um. Uh, I know. I just, I just really wanted those songs. I just, but the rest I had to do myself. Otherwise, <laughs> we couldn't have afforded to finish it. So, um, it's just. It's just been like a total re-education. There's, I, 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 I can't even begin to talk about how much you have to think to do a film. Like it, it's, you have to think. You know, you have to have a philosophy of how it's going to look, right? You know yep. what elements, aesthetic elements you want to put in. It's, it's really, really, and then you know, just trying to tell the story because there's so many moving parts. And so. and what a lot of people d- don't realize is a documentary is not as easy as people think it is. Um, especially when yeah. you're coming at it as an investigative reporter and you're tr- and you're being objective. Um, right. This is not a directorial voice for one side of the fence or the other. And no. that's right. what I really appreciate 
what you've done with the friendliest town because it is, you maintain that objectivity as opposed to forcing something down somebody's throat. And, I mean, I started in news back in the late 70s, back in the days of of the first move confrontation in Philadelphia. Um, Back in the good good old print days. Um, Yeah. So I started in news and in cable and went into film and television out of that but then always maintained print work. Uh, So finding that balance, I know how hard that is. So I have Mm -hmm. so much respect for what you have done with this documentary, Stephen. Well, thank you. I I mean, that's really kind of you to say. I think um, there is a benefit to having experience as a journalist, as you point out, because you really are forced not forced, but you learned the, the power of being objective mm-hmm. and the power of getting both sides of the story or three sides or four sides because it makes for a better, complete, comprehensive picture of what happened. And uh, you understand this, that that's not something, that's something you have to learn. And once you yeah. learn, it becomes sort of ingrained. And I think that's why it informed what we did. And, you know, the other aspect of it is people don't understand is you can't control, you know, a documentary. Some, some documentaries you can, but right. especially one like this, the story kept changing on us. And we never, as you, you asked a great question in the beginning, you said, when did you say enough is enough? Yeah. It's... <laughs> and um, that was a critical point because we've been following it. And it kept changing and changing and changing. And then we're like, okay, okay, we have to do this now. And it's still not over. So, the story is no. still not over. Uh, and that's something, no. that's something that people, you know, even when Todd Haynes did the movie with Mark Ruffalo, Dark Waters, a couple of years ago, and, oh, right, and the DuPont right. litigation. The DuPont litigation is still ongoing because it was never certified as a class. It, everybody, all the lawsuits wow. are individual cases. And wow. having concurrently spent over 27, almost 30 years in law myself, I've been following that DuPont case from the time it first started. So when Dark Waters came out, that's one of the things I asked Todd, and I've known Todd for many years. It's like, okay, what made now the right time to tell this when litigation is still ongoing? Um, that is a critical question. That's a fantastic question, and like that is one of the most pivotal questions you're going to confront when you're actually documenting reality as opposed to writing a screenplay where you can just yeah. conform it to whatever you... Yeah, that's it. That is you're over, you're done. Question. But now here, will you go back, will you continue to follow Sewell's story um, Mm -hmm. through whatever happens with this next appeal? Definitely. I mean, you know, we're still journalists at The Real News. We still, we host a show called Police Accountability Report. Uh, My plan is when they they hand out a decision to do, you know, reporting, and we have still reported on stuff in Pocomoke, we write for the Afro newspaper, and we report on stuff that goes on down there. So, But absolutely, I'm going to follow the Sewell situation until it reaches its conclusion. And, you know, the, the, appeal is pending. the appeal is pending right now, so hopefully in the next five or six months. But as you know, because you have experience, there's no way to predict when a court's <laughs> going to render a decision and if that's going to be final. Have they done all the briefing yet? 
Yes. Okay. So they all the, did a briefing for the second appeal. <laughs> okay. So now it's it's up to the court unless they come back yes. and with and they grant oral argument or something like that. Um, well, I think what they've done just uh, they did their oral arguments. Okay. So the, um, via Zoom in May. So right now we're just waiting for the court to render a decision. But as you know, it could be tomorrow. It could be six months from now. Yeah. Uh, I know that yeah. some states have laws that technically, okay, it's within 90 days of getting a case, within 120 days of getting the case, um, the upper mm-hmm. courts are supposed to rule. And never, it, the time, the amount of times that happens is few and far between. <laughs> um, right. there, there's always something right. that causes a delay, um, right. be it a manufactured delay or a legitimate delay. Um, exactly. so yeah, I was, I was curious and I didn't get a chance to actually pull up, um, you know, pull up the docket or pull anything up on the appeal, uh, to see yeah, what stage it was at. I, pending, so. I figured, oh, I can just ask Stephen <laughs> where it is. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so now what's next for you, uh, in terms hmm. of. Another investigative story that could turn into a documentary? Would you venture into the documentary world again or just stick with the print, the print word in authorship and in news? Well, I, I, I think I feel like I want to try this again, but maybe I'm just misinformed. I don't know. Like there, <laughs> there's part of me that sees there's a couple topics that I'm, I'm, playing with right now that I, I think could also benefit from this kind of, you know, long-form filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But of course, as you know, making a documentary is more like, um, uh, I mean, it's financial penance. You know, <laughs> it's not a, a, a lucrative field or a field, you know, it's pretty tough. And um, I want to make sure if I pick something, there are a couple of topics floating around right now. And if, if it really works out, and I feel like it can really benefit from, you know, what you point out was kind of our strength as being journalists then I think I would do it. I wouldn't just do it to do it because it's, it is, as you know, and as you ask all the right questions, it is a really uh, wrenching process. So um, I think if, if these topics uh, turn out to be the right ones for what we can bring something new to it and something worthwhile, I'm going to probably do something else, but we'll see, you know. <laughs> and of course we will hear from you once the, the Maryland appellate court comes down. Uh, Absolutely. With a decision. I'm really curious to see yeah. how this plays out now. Really curious. Yeah, no, I mean, we will, we, I will let you know, and, you know, I'll, I'll email you as soon as we have a decision, because you know, it'll be interesting to see if the court sends it. If the court sends it back, it could oh. be retried again. <laughs> I know. I know. And you never yeah. know what's going to happen. And the way the political mm-hmm. climate has changed... It could. Right. It actually could be a good thing if it gets sent back for another trial, but it depends. Maybe Worcester County's tough, though. That's just it. That's just it. Unless there have been some yeah. great judiciary changes within those sitting on the bench, uh, right. th- then it gets dicey because you could be in the same boat again with the same judges exactly. who are making the same rulings, who are denying the same motions, mm-hmm. who are screwing up for dire, um, you know, and you don't want to yep. go for a bench trial 
because no. th- then you already know which way uh, the judge is going to mm-hmm. lean. So, yeah, it'll be interesting yeah. to see how this plays out, Stephen. I can't wait. Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad you're interested. We will definitely keep you informed, and as soon as I know something, I will I'll definitely let you know. Oh, my God, definitely. Stephen, this has been an absolute joy. This has been wonderful having you on the show today. I can't thank you enough. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a great conversation. I mean, I, I appreciate your questions. They really uh, elicit some serious thinking about documentary filmmaking, which I appreciate because it needs to be discussed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I do hope you'll come back on the show again. Absolutely. Anytime. Even if it's just to talk about news coverage. Absolutely. If, if something happens, you know, I'll let you know, and I can always give an update to everybody on what happened to Calvin. So I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. That would be fabulous. Oh, Stephen. And where can everybody find your show? Your news oh, show. Okay. So it's available right now in VOD, um, which is video on demand, like Comcast, um, Amazon, iTunes, uh, YouTube, you know, where you can rent it. So right. it's available the- on all those mediums. And then we have Gravitas distributing it, so maybe in like 90 days it will go to uh, some sort of streaming service. So it's pretty much everywhere, and there's a DVD available as well. Now, what about for the show that you and Taya do? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you just Google the police accountability report. Okay. Um, and you'll see it's on YouTube, and we, we report for the Real News Network. So the Real News Network, police accountability report, you'll be able to find our, our ongoing reporting. And then everybody can find the friendliest town as well. Ah, mm-hmm. fabulous, Stephen. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to talk to you again. Okay. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Stephen. Bye-bye. And that was documentarian, author, composer, investigative journalist, Stephen Janis, The Friendliest Town. It's out. See it, see it, see it. A bunch of great films we talked about today. Hopeless Romantic, it's available now. Friendliest Town is available. Paradise Cove is available. Me, you madness. And I think next week we're going to talk, talk about Willie's Wonderland, I think. Plus, we have more live guests uh, next week. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.